You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Hey, it is good to be with you. Thank you for having me. And I I, uh, Clint and I swapped this morning, so um, he is just now finishing his sermon, um, I'm assuming. You know, maybe he went long. I don't know. He could have, right? Maybe I'll go long. Who knows? Um, but our, our churches at Mountain View and Midtown and South Scottsdale have entered into this really neat, deep partnership, and it has been such a blessing for us. I can speak for us. It's been a really awesome blessing, and Uh, One of the ways that plays out is that we are now preaching on the same text and topic every week. So on Thursday mornings, we get together and pray over, think about, uh, study the passage together. Uh, Jackie Parks and Clint and myself and a couple of other pastors. And that has been a really rich, rich thing. So Clint's preaching this morning. Uh, on this same passage, and then after this service, I'm going to drive across town and hear Jackie Parks preach over at South Scottsdale Presbyterian. So this is one of the ways. It's just been a, a really rich um, partnership in, in many, many ways. And um, I get to benefit from Clint and his vast knowledge. Boy, he is so smart, um, And uh, as you do every week. So I feel, I feel like this is a great blessing for me, He's, uh, and Jackie as well. So this morning, we are uh, in the series sermons, we're looking at the Apostles' Creed. And so we have talked about God, uh, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. That's the ground that we've been on so far. And this morning, I'm going to be uh, talking with you about the next line in the Apostles' Creed, which talks about Jesus' suffering dead, buried, crucified, dead, buried. Jesus suffered, crucified, dead, and buried. So that's our, our, our topic this morning. And I want to read some verses, some absolutely powerful, world-changing verses that come from Mark chapter 15. And I'm going to read um, beginning at verse 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him into the courtyard of the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole cohort, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him, and they began saluting him. Hail, King of the Jews. They struck his head with a reed, spat upon him, and knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. They compelled a passerby who was coming from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, these these words are your words. 
uh, and thus it is you who should speak them. Do that, we humbly ask, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, one of the interesting things about the church is, if you really step back and look at it, um, is how the central defining thing of our faith is the cross, the crucifixion, but it's interesting how sparse the language is around it. Um, Mark says simply this. He just says, and they crucified him. That's all he says. And they crucified him. The Apostles' Creed says it like this, crucified, dead, buried. Those words have a ring of finality about them. They are like a hammer pounding nails into a lid of a coffin, crucified, dead, buried. Uh, the, the framers of the Apostles' Creed wanted us to understand something very, very important. The certainty of Jesus' death. There's no other way to interpret this. Mark knew that the crucifixion carried a lifetime's worth of image and horror. You don't need to add anything to it. He crucified him. He understood that. There's no flowery language. There's no descriptive language that needs to be put to it. They crucified. Now, remember where we've come. We've already said, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I mean, that's a lot. That's a big, big thing. God who created everything, billions, billions, billions upon billions of stars, the one who came and lived among us, and then suddenly, we haven't been going that far. That God, they crucified him. Wow. It's, it's just staggering. Um, there's some things, words, or events in our language that just don't need elaboration. And the reason they're so insistent is that after Easter, when the disciples began to win followers and the church began to grow, thousands of converts, authorities began to worry, and they put out a, a false rumor, fake news, that Jesus, you know, he really didn't die on the cross. There was a rumor going around that he had fallen into a coma. I mean, if anyone who understands the cruci way crucifixion works, it's kind of nonsense. But they put out this rumor. That, no, he, he was in a coma. Then he was in the tomb. But he revived. He emerged from the tomb. He lived on for several weeks before finally succumbing to his wounds. Uh, books have been written about this. Uh, a guy a few years ago, Hugh Schoenfield, dredged up the rumor, and he published a book called The Passover Plot. He claimed that that rumor was true, that Jesus didn't really die, um, and that we've been deluded, Christians' followers throughout 2,000 years, we've been deluded to believe this. But this is why the creed is so important on this note, because there's no other way to interpret it. Finality. Jesus was undeniably crucified. Pontius Pilate was the one on the, on the watch. He was a real person in human history. There were Roman soldiers there. Jesus was really dead when they took him off the cross. Jesus was truly buried in a, in a, in a borrowed tomb, crucified, dead, buried. Now, the eyewitnesses offer a lot of evidence as well. They tell us how the body was partially embalmed with ointment and spices wrapped in a shroud, laid in a tomb. They, they tell how massive the stone was against the door of the tomb. It was fully six feet across, about six inches thick, hardly the kind of barrier a weakened victim, victim of crucifixion could easily get up and push aside. It's just, just, it's just not going to happen, especially after even 40 hours in a tomb. No, the eyewitnesses got it right. They understood, and they passed it on to us. Jesus was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. 
Now, the symbol of the cross, as you know, has become very, it's, it's ubiquitous, right? I mean, we see it everywhere. If you're, if you're actually looking for it today as you leave worship, you will see the cross everywhere. Um, people wear it around their necks. You see it on billboards. You see it on churches. You see the cross all kinds of places. Um, it, it's really staggering if you think about it because this was a means of execution, a gruesome, probably the worst form of execution ever invented in its horror. It was state-sponsored terrorism of the worst possible kind. Can you imagine if we wore an electric chair symbol around our neck or a firing squad? Crucifixion was worse, but we would never think about that way. That's what this was. It was the world's most invented, horrific way to kill someone, and the state did this. I've often wondered, this is just an aside, just a, this is my own kind of just aside for a moment. I've often wondered with the cross symbol everywhere in society, so that it, it's so ubiquitous it doesn't mean a whole lot, if the church ought to go the other direction and hide it. What if we only brought it out one day a year? Can you imagine, maybe on Good Friday, and the church gathered, and we just looked at it and said, oh my, wow. If it became such a precious thing, but also a a sacred, hollow, a holy thing. I'm not sure on that, but something to think about. Um, it was used to put down a rebellion. It was public. Rome wanted to scare the daylights out of everyone. We get the word excruciating from the Latin word for crucifixion. Jesus went through excruciating pain and suffering. Um, it was such a horrific way to die that Roman citizens were, were by law, not allowed to be executed that way. Um, you know, what's amazing about Mark's description of the crucifixion is that it's one Greek word, one short phrase, and they crucified him. Wow. Jesus, God of the universe, Mark says, think about this for a moment. They crucified him. The worst form of death. Why? Why did Jesus have to die? When I was uh, in seminary, uh, my first year of seminary, I took a class on Mark's gospel. And I was brand new at seminary. And the first week of class, our professor said this. He says, I want you to write a paper, a one-page paper. It doesn't even have to be one page. It can be just a paragraph. But I want you to answer this question, he said. Put down your thoughts, not what someone else thinks, not what, don't quote me scholars or anything. I want you to write down on a piece of paper, answer this question, why did Jesus have to die? Now, I was new to seminary at this point, so all I heard was one page. And I thought, well, that's great. I can get that through, no problem. Like, in my mind, I'm thinking, if he'd said 15 pages, I'd be like, oh, man, that's going to take some time. But one page, I thought, oh, no problem, right? That turned out to be the hardest assignment I ever had in seminary. It took me more time because as I started asking the question, why did Jesus have to die? Why? That was really, really tough. I mean, think about it. Why does the God of the universe have to be crucified? And I'd start to go down this trail and I'd write, and then I thought, well, I, that doesn't, it was, it was just a tough process. 
basically, I, I ended up coming up with two things, and I have no idea, but this is what I came up with. I'm going to share them. My seminary education lives on. Tom's a professor. He'll be happy, but I'm going to give you two things. This is a long time ago I was in seminary, but I still remember. Here's the two things I came up with. You ready? Jesus had to die because God needed to take care of my sin. Okay, that was number one. Paul in 1 Corinthians says this, Christ died for our sins according with the scriptures. Jesus said about himself, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom. That's why I came. On the cross, God was dealing with the human crisis. The mess that we are all in, every single one of us, the human crisis, God was dealing with it and fixing it and resolving it on the cross. Uh, there's a pastor, Presbyterian pastor, that invented a kind of a whimsical illustration that I want to share with you on this about the human crisis. He says, imagine you and uh, four of your friends are on a cruise ship and you are in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You're way, way out, okay? Um, far out from any shore. Um, what you don't know is that one of your friends is really evil in his heart. You don't know this. He's, he's one of your friends, but he tells the four of you, to stand next to the railing. You know, your back's against the railing at the edge of the ship because he's going to take your picture. But unbeknownst to you, he's loosened all the nuts on the railing and he keeps saying, go back a little further, go back a little further. And you do. And what happens is the railing collapses and all four of you land in the ocean. He doesn't tell anybody. There you are in the Pacific Ocean. The question is, what will help now? That's the crisis. You are drowning, you're treading water, you're in the ocean, no one knows, you're so far from shore. What can help and what doesn't help now? Okay? So maybe there's some responses, and these are still popular in our world today, and Paul talked about this in Romans. One is, you could lean on your religiosity at that moment. Think about it. One of the guys who's in the water, he speaks up and he says this, he says, you know, I've been studying the scriptures for years. Um... And I'm, I'm a legalist, and I, I know how these things work. Um, but the other thing is, is I love maps, and I've been studying maps the whole trip. And you, you all should have been paying more attention to the situation we're in. I've been studying this, and I have it down. Um, I didn't go to the parties, and I didn't go to the banquet, and I didn't go all of the things that you guys went to. I was studying the situ human situation that we are in, and I want you to know that the, the truth of our crisis, we are uh, 1,438 miles from the shore. He's a man of the law, right? How does that knowledge help in that situation? It has nothing. Part of the human crisis is we may think, well, I've been very religious. I have an understanding of the scriptures. I don't know. It does nothing for us. The second guy represents kind of the Greek perspective. He says, hey, I want you to know as we're treading water here that um, I, I want you to know that I was traveling in first class. And it was beautiful. And... You know, I've been, I've been uh, getting all my Botox treatments, and I've been getting, you know, everything ready, and, and uh, you know, this and this and this. Um, I was on the upper, uh, you know, the traveling of first class. I had wealth. How does that help? That does nothing. The third guy maybe represents a, a Roman perspective. He's, he says, I'm, I'm really strong and powerful. I, I, I'm a, I'm a world-class swimmer. I've been at the YMCA every day. 
and I have been swimming and swimming and swimming. I, you know, hey, I'll give you some tips. The side stroke, really good for long distances. You know, that'll be a good thing. Um, side stroke is what you ought to do at this point. Um, he says, I'm sorry about you all, but I'm a world-class swimmer. How is that going to help? It does nothing. You're 1,400 miles from the shore. The fourth guy, the last one, says, well, hey, um, I don't know about you all, but um, he, he's kind of an idolater. He, he, he believes in, in having an idol, and he says, um, the idol, his idol is, it could be anything, but his idol is Taylor Swift. He's like, oh, I just love Taylor Swift. I absolutely adore her. I've got her statue right here. You know, I, I carry it around with me. I've got her pictures with me. I brought her along. Well, how does that help? I mean, it just weighs him down, and he kind of sinks to the bottom, you know, glove, 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 glove. He's down. The crisis is too big. It's way too big for anything you and I can offer. It's too big. And on the cross, God was saying, I'm going to come down and solve this crisis. When Jesus died on the cross, he came to lift us back up. It's all his doing. It's a crisis that can um, outdistance. It's, it's a solution that can outdistance the crisis, something that's cumulative, a solution that can go on and on and on. Now, precisely how this works, how Christ can atone for our sins, the New Testament gives us a lot of clues about that. Um, it's described as a payment of debt, the satisfaction of a legal penalty, the transfer of guilt to a sacrificial lamb as an exodus from a bondage to sin. I, uh, I really don't know. I think this is a mystery way too big for our minds to kind of grasp. Other than to say, Jesus Christ died for our sins. I think that's the place where we need to live. And it was born out of love. And in an amazing way, God solved our crisis and came for us. Christ died for our sins. What did we just sing? By his blood, by his precious blood, bought the forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Second thing, second thing, I have two things. Second thing is that what happened on the cross was not an accident. It was a deliberate plan. Sometimes, you know, historians or people will reflect on um, they'll think of a life of a famous person, and they'll, they'll ask this question, like, what do you think would happen if so-and-so hadn't died? You know what I mean? Have you ever thought about this? What if Martin Luther King hadn't died? Would the civil rights movement had, had gone forward in a better way, in a, in, a, in a more wonderful way, if Martin Luther King hadn't died? Um, what if John, John F. Kennedy hadn't been shot? Might we have avoided Vietnam? You know, you can kind of wonder that. Do we ask these questions? But the death of Jesus is a completely different category. It's not a regrettable incident. It's unlike anything else that's ever happened in human history or anybody who's ever lived. In the early church, nobody ever, ever said, I wish Jesus could have lived on to be an old man and died peacefully in his sleep. They never said that. When they thought about the cross and what Jesus went through, they just said they were undone. Oh my, how wonderful, how marvelous, how glorious. This is what God was doing from the foundation of the world. 
I used to serve at Valley Presbyterian Church here in, in Phoenix, and they have this chapel. And it's a really cool little chapel. Um, Tom Parker seated it, and they have these stained glass window around the, the whole inside of it. And on the front, like up here, there's all of these, there's the sun and beams going out, and it's, it's a creation panel. People might not notice this, but if you really look at it, it's, it's in the round. There's two beams that go out from the sun and the creation. They go all the way around that chapel, and they meet in the back, and it forms a cross. When God was creating the world, he knew, he had in mind, he had planned that his son would die on the cross. This was the deliberate plan of heaven to fix, to heal, to restore the crisis, to save me from my sins. It's God's very character. His very character is, I'm going to love in a way that is unimaginable for these folks. My precious sons and daughter, I want them to know. I desperately want them to know the depth of my love. The Son of Man must be lifted up, said John. And John's gospel said Jesus. Karl Barth put it this way, the great theologian. He said, what we receive in the cross is total help for total need. And God had planned it that way all along. Let me, I'll close with um, this story. There's a man named Max Dupree. He uh, was a paramedic in World War II, and he served in Europe during World War II. Um, he told a story, I've, I've never forgotten this, about how they you would, would save soldiers. So this medic is out on the field. Um, they would go into the field after a battle whenever they could, and they would try and save the soldiers that were there. Um, sometimes they were wounded Allied soldiers, but sometimes they would actually treat wounded German soldiers as well. And Max says they always carried with them, these medics, units of blood for transfusion. And that blood would save lives, and the bag of blood, kind of, um, of a moral deal at the time, carried the names of the donors, can you imagine that cool? That so on the bag of blood, when they had this, they would have the name that was going to be transfused to help save someone else. Um, whenever they had given blood back in the states, the name was on the bag, and that blood, whoever got it, would know. Max said they started doing a really interesting thing. This wasn't military policy; uh, just some of the paramedics starting doing it. When they came to Jewish soldiers who were wounded. They would look for and find names of, that were Jewish, Jewish blood. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> These people who were Jewish would save. Their blood would be the means to help save. Max said they would actually talk to those who were wounded, those German soldiers, if the guys were conscious enough, and they would tell them, you know, if I don't help you, you're going to die. You're lying here, you're wounded, you're going to die, but you can be saved. You don't have to die. I want to help save you, but you are going to have to receive this blood from a Jewish donor if you want to stay alive. And Max said some of them would say, yes, please. But here's the most amazing thing. Sometimes they would say no. Think about that. 
Such was the pride, the arrogance, the folly, whatever that gets into the human heart, they would say, I would rather die than humble myself to receive the the life from the blood of a Jewish donor. And Max says, when that happened, they would let them go unconscious and they would give them the blood anyway. (laughs) Jesus said, this is my blood given for you. This is my body broken for you. This isn't an accident. He said this long before he was resurrected. He said to his disciples, I want my blood to save you. I want you to be washed. I want you to find life. I want you to be forgiven. This is my blood, which is given for you. He says, do this in remembrance of me. So we come to this table this morning. We should be mindful of Jesus on the cross. And I think it also means that we should absolutely be undone. Completely undone. This is a kind of love that you and I don't deserve. It's bigger than we could ever imagine. It's more wonderful and comforting than we could ever dream. Drink my blood, he says. Come, remember what I've done. Let's pray.